Well, please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Anybody else freezing? I cannot feel my fingers. It is a new year. And as we come to a new year, it's always a good time to reflect. What was this last year like for you? Are you closer in your walk with the Lord today than you were a year ago? What happened in this last year that brought you closer to Jesus? How is this new year going to be any different for you? What's going to change? What will be different? Will you draw closer to Christ? There is no neutrality in the Christian walk, and so if we are not drawing closer to him and pursuing him with everything that we have, then we will be pulled away by our flesh, by the devil, by our sin. As I was thinking about a New Year's message, I was thinking about bringing in the New Year together. I thought about Jesus' words to Peter. You remember in John chapter 21, you remember the setting Jesus has been killed, he has been raised from the dead, he is now meeting his disciples on the shore. Peter is back to fishing, they draw in an amazing catch. And after Peter has denied Christ three times, there's a beautiful interchange where Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And three times he asks that question, three times Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. And Jesus' words are, then tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And then he says, there's going to be a day that's going to come where you're going to be taken where you don't want to go and your hands are going to be stretched out where they don't want to be. And he is speaking of the manner in which Peter would die. And everyone around, all the disciples are wondering, what about me? What's going to happen? And Peter himself is wondering what's going to happen. And his heart must have just soared knowing that he would ultimately live for Jesus and not betray him yet again and not deny the faith, but die in martyrdom for his Savior. And then Jesus says just a few simple words. He says to Peter, you don't need to know everything that's going to happen. This is what you need to know. Two things, two words, follow me. That's all. That's all you need, Peter. You have been forgiven. Now follow me. Follow me. I think that when we look at the world around us, we think about persecution. We think about Peter dying for his faith. We think about, you know what, what if that were me? Would I be able to die for Christ? The more that I think about that question, the more I think it's a very easy answer. Um, Dying for Christ is easy. We can do that. We can do that. We can exist and die for our Savior. The real question is, can you live for him? Christianity is not a death to be died. It's a life to be lived. It's not a one-time call upon Jesus, be saved, and never think about him again. Or it's not a one-time die for him and everything's finished. It's a race to be run. It's a fight to be fought. It's something that must always take your preoccupation. It's something that must be, it's, it's a war that must be waged constantly every single day. So when Jesus says to Peter, follow me, you're going to die for me, but now do something, follow me, live for me. You will die for me one day, now live for me. I think we can sum up the Christian life this way. The Christian life is a life of faith characterized by a long pattern of obedience to Jesus. It's a life of faith characterized by a long pattern of obedience to Jesus. 
Revelation tells us that the prize is only given to those who finish the race, the overcomers who get to the end. It's not about beginning. It's not about starting. So many people target in evangelism, just jump in, dive into the race, start, start the race, pray the prayer, start the race, jump in with me. And we fail to remember, oh, it's not about starting, it's about finishing. It's about getting to the end. If the prize truly is only for those who finish and not merely begin the race, then how can we be certain to press on to the race's end? A dear pastor friend says it this way, um, somehow, whether actively or passively, directly or indirectly, we have come to believe that the Bible's doctrine of eternal security renders null and void the possibility of apostasy. Somehow we've bought into this notion, once saved, I don't have to worry. I don't have to work. I don't have to fight. I don't have to live in obedience. I don't have to run with endurance the race that has been set before me. But as you know, a familiar passage to you in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, no, no, it's a race to be run. You have to run. And you have to run with endurance. You can't saunter. You can't lollygag. You need to run. You need to run. Let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. And then we'll dive in it together to figure out how we are supposed to run. How can we run this race with endurance? Verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God, please help us in these moments that we have. Make us runners that run with endurance. May this message be used by you to seal hearts for the day of redemption, to put resolve in the footing of soldiers that are in this room, that are fighting until their last day against the devil, against their flesh, against sin. God, we praise you that you've given us Jesus and you've given us his righteousness and you've given us the power to defeat sin because it has been broken at the cross. And even as we prepare in our own hearts to partake of communion together, may we fix our eyes on Jesus because of our time in this passage this morning. We need your help. We need your spirit. Come and teach us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. This passage has one main verb. And that one main verb, that one command is run. Let us run. But surrounded by that one command of we must run, we must run with endurance, let us run, are three ways that we are to run. Two of them are participles that help um, buffer and support the main point of running. And we're going to see this morning three different phrases. We'll put them into little phrases 
that help us as we are to run. Three ways that we are to run the race to completion, to run the race well. If the Christian life is a race to be run, how are we to run it well? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us three ways that we are to run our race with endurance. And as we think about this new year, Let's think about running 2015 well. Let's think about running in it with endurance. Not just today, not just tomorrow, but let's think about next year and breaking the tape into 2016 together. Running well. How are we to run? Number one, the first phrase that I want to give to you is found in verse one, and it is this. If we're to run well, we must, number one, listen to the witnesses. We must listen to the witnesses. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore taking his cue from what he said in chapter 11, all of these people of the Hall of Fame of Faith, we have their testimony. They are witnesses to us. And therefore, because we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run. Since we have witnesses that are around us, let us run. Listen to the witnesses. Witnesses in the Bible are are never passive observers. Sometimes we think of... um, People in heaven, you know, we think of Paul in heaven or David in heaven as a witness, just kind of standing there, go, come on, come on, you can do it. Um, They're just kind of like cheerleaders, um, rah, rah, come on, you can make it, guys. And yes, I do think that they are encouraging us, and I do think that they are praying for us and longing for us to finally be in glory. But witnesses are never just onlookers. They're never just passive observers. They're always engaged participants in the Bible. They are always people who speak, who give testimony. They're witnessing to something. And so the author of Hebrews says we must listen to their testimony. They're speaking to us. What are they telling us? What are the witnesses in the Bible telling us? I think they're telling us two main things. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing, talking about Old Testament Israel. And how they really, really, really messed up on several occasions. You know this section in verse 13. um, No temptations overtaken you, but what's common to man. Everybody has temptations. Everybody has struggles. It's as old as the Old Testament Israelites, and you're struggling with the same thing. But he says this in verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them. What are these things? Well, it's the punishment that they received, the serpents that came out. Um, It's the way that God judged and dealt with Old Testament Israel. All of these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So the first thing that we can learn from the witnesses, the first example that they are giving to us is how not to live. How not to live. If you ask you know, a, a youth group, you ask junior hires, you tell them, I want you to be like David. I want you to be like David in the Bible. I think their response might be, well, which, which David? The David who fought Goliath or the David who committed adultery with Bathsheba? Which David do you want me to be like? I think we are told by the witnesses as we listen to their example of how not to live. How not to live. And 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us that. Now turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 tells us the second reason or the second message that the witnesses are preaching to us. First, or this is Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That's the same thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. It's written for our instruction 
But in 1 Corinthians 10, it was written as an example to us of how not to live. And now in Romans chapter 15, he says it was written for instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So it's not only a witness to how not to live, but the scriptures and the example of the witnesses as we listen to them is a picture of how to live. Hope. Hope in the fact that God grants grace. Hope in the fact that the David who killed Goliath and the David who slept with Bathsheba are all a David forgiven under the grace of Jesus Christ. So they're written for our hope. We must listen to the witnesses. In the summer, we're going to go back to our summer through the Psalms. One of the things I love about the Psalms is they're always listening to witnesses. Psalm 77 is all about remember the time when, remember the time when, remember the time when. Let's listen to the testimony of the witnesses in Scripture. They teach us about the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God. As we go into 2015, there will be many times where you will think God is not trustworthy. There will be many times you will be tempted to place your hope and confidence in something else or someone else. That's why the author of Hebrews says we must listen to the witnesses. How can we do this practically? Give yourself to the Word of God. Give yourself, wholly devote yourself to the Word of God. Listen to those who have gone before you, and there's no better place to turn than God's Word. That's why I plead with you. If you haven't already, you've only missed four days. Actually, if you start today, you've only missed three days. Start a Bible reading plan. I don't know if we have any more back on the shelf, but we have a bunch on our website. If you click on our links to our Bible reading plans, you have a myriad of of plans that are uh, at your fingertips. Plans, whether it's, um, I I read this last year, uh, Robert Murray McShane's reading plan, and it was so helpful. It was uh, a place in the Old Testament, a place in the New Testament, um, a psalm, a proverb. It was reading a, a number of different Uh, chapters a day, so that you'd read through the Old Testament once, the New Testament twice, Psalms twice, and Proverbs um, 12 times in a year. It was beautiful. It was amazing. I loved it. And now I I changed my reading plan. I'm I'm, uh, just kind of, um, I I can't settle into the same thing. So new year, new plan. Got to do something different. And I'm going to the strict, just start at the beginning and get to the end. Um, It's three chapters a day instead of five or six. And in three chapters a day, you can read the entire Bible in a year. You can do it. Three chapters a day, 10 minutes maybe, 15 minutes maybe, 20 minutes max, you can do it. Break it up over time. Listen to the Bible on CD. Listen to the Bible in your car, on your iPod. Do something to get the witnesses in your ears, in front of your face, so that you can listen to their testimony. Please, please give yourselves to the word of God in 2015. Let's hold each other accountable to doing that. If we are to run and we are to run with endurance and run well, we have to listen to their testimony. A second way, a second phrase that I want to give you that you'll see in verse 1, that we are to run well. Not only just listening to the witnesses, but number two, lay aside the hindrances. Lay aside the hindrances. The author of Hebrews says, let us also, after we have listened to the witnesses as we are running, let us also, on top of that, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So listen to the cloud of witnesses, listen to them as they surround us and run. But as you're running, lay aside every encumbrance. 
and lay aside every sin which so easily entangles us. So two things that the author of Hebrews tells us are hindrances to our running that we need to lay aside. First, encumbrance. What's an encumbrance? An encumbrance is anything that slows down your running, that impedes your progress as you're running. An encumbrance would be a weight or an article of clothing back in the day that the runners would just take off so that they could run unimpeded, unhindered. How foolish would it be? How silly would it be to turn on the Olympics? Are the Olympics this summer? No. Yes? No. Whenever the Olympics happen in the summer, soon to be, what if you turned on the Olympics and you saw in the 100-meter dash, you saw somebody walk out there. They're always dressed in like indecent clothing. And you see somebody walk out there with a parka and Ugg boots. I'm going to run the 100-meter dash and I'm going to beat everybody. That's foolishness. The runners wear these tiny little shoes that are utterly weightless because they want nothing to impede their progress. Get everything out of the way. So, the author of Hebrews says, as you are running, take away any encumbrance. He's going to say, take away sin, so we know that there are bad things that we are to stop doing. But encumbrance is a different word because it's not necessarily a sinful practice. It becomes sin when it slows our running down. But it can be very good things. It can be great things that God has given for us to enjoy, but can become idols. They can begin to impede our progress. And as you run, you'll know what these things are. You might ask, okay, how do I know what these encumbrances are? First way to know is start running. Run the race and you will know. Only those who fail to run feel no resistance. Run, and you will figure out what's slowing you down. You will figure it out. It could be fashion. It could be money. It could be fame. It could be laziness. It could be an academic goal. It could be sports. It could be friendships. It could be books or a professional ambition. It could be hobbies that you're interested in. It could be television, the internet, a genre of movies or music. It could be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It could be a spouse or a son or a daughter, all definitely good things. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And it slows your progress down, and you can't run with endurance. So the author of Hebrews says we need to lay aside every encumbrance, anything that slows you down. Now you say, okay, wait, I'm not aware of any any hindrances in my running. What do I do? Uh, Number one, I would say pray and ask the Lord to reveal that to you. Ask the Lord to reveal any wicked way that would be in you. Ask the Lord to reveal anything that would be slowing you down. But number two, and I say this with caution, but number two, if you absolutely have no hindrance whatsoever and you can look around and you see nothing slowing down my running, then my question to you is, are you even running? If you are standing on the sidelines, then of course nothing's going to impede your progress because you're not running. Are you running the race? If you are, you will know what slowly creeps in and starts to hold you back. Will 2015 be a year that you look back on and you say, you know what, I could have grown so much more. I could have done so many more things, put myself in the way of truth, put myself in fellowship, put myself in Bible studies, put myself in men's groups and women's groups, memorize scripture. But instead I did X, Y, and Z. I did this instead. I did the encumbrances 
not necessarily bad things, not inherently sinful things, but things that turn to bad things when it keeps us from running hard after Jesus. So first, the first hindrance is an encumbrance. The second hindrance that the author of Hebrews tells us is sin, which so easily entangles us. This is why Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, that if you are to be truly a follower of Jesus Christ and you have sin inside of you, you must gouge out your eye and throw it far from you. For it's better for your body to go incomplete into heaven than your whole body to go to hell. We must deal radically with our sin this year. Can I ask you what sin is there in your life that you still coddle, that you still cling to, that this year you can get radical with and start dealing with it the way that the Lord has told us to deal with our sin? I love the, the imagery that Jesus gives us in that passage. I would think that it would be enough to gouge out my eye, but no, it's not. Jesus says you must gouge out your eye and throw it from you because we would all be tempted as we gouge out that sinful practice in our life. We pop out our eye and we say, okay, wait, hang on. I shouldn't have done that. That was way too radical. We put it on ice and we drive to the emergency room and say, please put this back. It was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Jesus says deal with sin radically. Deal with sin radically always reminds me of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. There's a picture of a ghost who is trying to enter into heaven. And as he's trying to get into heaven, um, he walks up and, and the angel that's standing there says, you can't come in, you have this lizard on your shoulder. And the ghost says, oh, he's always been with me, he's never going to hurt anybody, it's okay, let me in. And the angel says, no, you can't come in with that lizard. And the ghost looks at the lizard and realizes this lizard's never really done anything helpful for me. It's just constantly hurting me and annoying me. But he struggles. I don't want to give it up. Maybe I can hide it. Maybe I can get in without them knowing. And finally he does what the angel tells him that he has to do, which is throw the lizard off his shoulder, stomp on it till it dies. As he's stomping on the lizard, the lizard's speaking to him, saying, please don't do this, don't do this. And when he finally kills the lizard, which is a picture of the sin that would be holding you back, when he finally kills the lizard, the interesting thing is that lizard instantly becomes a great white horse that the ghost is able to get on top of and ride into heaven, which is an amazing truth. The very things that hold us back, if we deal with them properly and biblically, those are the things that will catapult us forward. We are more than conquerors. We don't just kill sin. We kill sin, the very thing that Satan would love for us to be involved in to glorify him and take glory away from Jesus, we kill sin and in doing that, it propels us forward in following Jesus Christ. That's why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, I beat my body, I make it my slave. I'm not playing a game. We are not at peace with our flesh, at peace with our sin. We will never be at peace until we die. We are in a war. I always love John Piper's quote. He says it this way, Until you believe that life is war, that the stakes are your soul, you will probably just play at Christianity with no blood earnestness and no vigilance and no passion and no wartime mindset. And if that is where you are this morning, your position is very precarious. The enemy has lulled you into sleep or into a peacetime mentality as if nothing serious is at stake. And God in his mercy has you here this morning and had this sermon appointed to wake you up 
and put you on a wartime footing. Brothers and sisters, we are in a war and we cannot lay down our arms for one second. Will 2015 find us more knowledgeable about the weapons that God has given to us, more able to defeat the enemy, or will 2015 find us with less ammunition, with our arms down, with our flesh destroying us? If we are to run with endurance, we must listen to the witnesses, and we must lay aside the hindrances, encumbrances, and sin, which so easily entangles us. I just love how the author says it that way. I would have said encumbrances easily entangle us because they're harder to figure out. They're good things that turn into bad things so quickly. They're good things that become idle so quickly. But he says, you know what? The encumbrances you can handle. Sin every day entangles us. That's why we need to fight. We need to fight. So, number three, how are we to run the race with endurance? Not only do we listen to the witnesses, not only do we lay aside the hindrances, but third and finally, we must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus. This is verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. Fix our eyes on him. Focus our attention on him. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews since Hebrews 10.19 that the Hebrew writer uses the word Jesus when speaking about Jesus. He's spoken about the great high priest, the son of God. He's spoken about Jesus in many different ways, the Messiah But now he wants to remind us that Jesus ran his race as a man. He's Jesus. And as you and I are running, we can know as we fix our eyes on him that he as a man ran his race to completion. We must fix our eyes on him. This is true in any area of life. If you want to be good at something, you must fix your eyes on the people that are best at that something. You want to be a a good guitar player, You have to listen to the greats. You have to watch the greats. You have to listen to people like Tommy Emmanuel, who just is amazingly fast with his fingers. He just blows me away as I listen to him. Listen to the Stevie Ray Vaughans. Listen to the Eric Clapton's. Listen to these people and understand how to play that instrument the best way that you possibly can. If you want to be a good quarterback, you have to look to the greats. Look to the Roger Staubachs. Look to the Brett Favre's. Look to the Steve Youngs and the Joe Montana's. Look to the best of the best to learn how to do it, what it is that you were wanting to do with perfection, with excellence. Fixing our attention on Jesus would be fixing our attention on the one who has run his race most perfectly. There's nobody better to look at. When the author of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes, that's a participle, and participles take their cues from the main verb, which is let us run, and They also take their tenses, and this is a present verb or a present imperative. Let us run. Let us continually be running. Never give up. Never stop. It's not a one-time thing. So fixing is not a one-time thing as well. It's a present progressive. We must continually be fixing our eyes on Jesus, knowing that there are many times that we are tempted to take our eyes off of Jesus. For every moment that we are running this race, we must have our eyes fixed on him not on anything else. It's like putting blinders on a horse. You have one goal. You have one purpose. Stare at that and at nothing else. Let nothing else be a distraction. Notice what the author of Hebrews does not tell us that we are supposed to fix our eyes on. Notice what he is telling us to and not to fix our eyes on. 
Just three observations of things that people tend to fix their eyes on instead of Jesus. And sometimes they think that they're doing a good thing. First, circumstances. Author Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, not your circumstances. We're running a race. Well, it's getting a little cloudy out here. It looks like rain. Maybe we should take a break. No, don't fix your eyes on the circumstances. Trials and temptations around you, fix your eyes on Jesus, not on what's going on around you. Number two, don't fix your eyes on other runners. We are supposed to listen to the witnesses, but not fix our eyes on them. We're supposed to listen to those around us, be discipled by those older than us in the faith, but never fix our eyes on them. Sometimes when we're running, we look at people and we say, I'm doing a lot better than they are, and we start to slow down. Or sometimes we look at somebody way ahead and say, I'll never reach that, and we give up. We are not supposed to fix our eyes on anything but Jesus. And and number three, and I think this is important for this morning as we come to the Lord's table, we are not supposed to fix our eyes on ourselves. We're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus, not ourselves. Hopefully you hear many times at CBC, you must look inside, you must examine yourself, but that is not the ultimate place where you look, and that is definitely not the ultimate place where you fix your gaze. We can constantly be under the oppression of, am I enough? Am I good enough? Have I read enough? Have I prayed enough? Am I good enough? That's why the author of Hebrews says, forget it all. Fix your eyes on Jesus and nothing else. But why? Why fix our eyes on Jesus? Let me give you two reasons as to why we should fix our eyes on Jesus and nothing else. Number one, because Jesus ran his race in absolute perfection. Jesus ran his race in absolute perfection. The witnesses all had faults, all failed. They all preached a better message than they could live out. But not so with Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That word author, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author, that's the idea of a pioneer. It's the idea of somebody who has gone before us, paved the way, a trailblazer, as it were, so that now we know how we're supposed to run. We know what way to go. We know how we're supposed to run. And we know that there's a finish line and it's possible to get there perfecter. He's the author, the pioneer, and he's the perfecter. He's not another one in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of fame of faith. He's not alongside Gideon. He's not alongside Samson or Moses or Abraham. He's in a completely different category because he not only can run his race in absolute perfection, but he can perfect you as you run your race. None of the other witnesses could do that. As the pioneer, he's paved the way for you. As the perfecter, he has displayed a perfect model of faithfulness for you. And as the forerunner, his presence at the finish line guarantees your finish, guarantees my finish. This is why when we gather together, we just want to fix our eyes on Jesus. This is why we sing songs that are all centered around Jesus. This is why we give out seeing and savoring Jesus Christ to all of our new visitors, because we want them to see and savor Jesus. We want them to fix their eyes on him. We don't want to walk through these doors and look inward. We don't want to walk through these doors and figure out, what do I want to hear? What do I want to learn? We want to walk through these doors and figure out, who is Jesus and how can I fix my eyes on him more? And how have I lost sight of him? I want to put blinders on. This is why preaching, when we preach the word of God, it must be nothing less 
than a banquet table, serving delicacies that are Jesus-filled, that are all about magnifying him. We want to feast upon him and him alone. It was about 30 years ago, there was a conference of pastors and professors of Bible colleges. We'll use that term Bible college very loosely because one of the um, chairmen of the Bible department at one Bible college said this. This was 30 years ago, and it's proven to be true in every facet of um, the academic world in evangelicalism. But he said this, For the church in the 20th century, the simple gospel is not enough. For the church in the 20th century, the simple gospel is just not enough. We have to do more. We have to do other things. We have to go other places. But it will not satisfy the church to only preach the gospel. It will not grow a church to only preach the gospel. Other things are needed. You see this a lot in youth groups. Uh, You see this a lot where kids leave youth ministries and parents are always asking, why do kids leave so much, so often? It's because all we were doing was teaching the Bible. It's got to be something else. We've got to bring other things in, more games, more entertainment. Maybe the group isn't cool enough. Maybe you need more media. Maybe you need better music. I love the way one pastor says it. He says, no, people leave the church, not because the group isn't cool enough, not because the media isn't cool enough, not because the music isn't cool enough. People leave the church because our view of the person and work of Jesus Christ and the glorious cross are not compelling enough. Kids walk in and think, who's this Jesus? What does he have to offer me? Eh, never mind. I can take him or leave him. We leave the church. Adults as well leave the church. Not because we don't have a good friend. Not because the church doesn't meet our needs. We leave the church because the picture of Jesus is not compelling enough. It's not glorious enough. If we fail to provide our church with a view of Jesus that shows him to be more infinitely glorious than anyone or anything, then yes, people will leave. They will. That's why we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus and never get beyond him. Never look to anything else to satisfy us. He alone is our satisfaction. The Puritans used to call this the expulsive power of a greater affection. As we stare at him and we love him more, everything else will fade away. We sang it, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Stare at him and everything else starts to fade away. If the encumbrances around you are starting to become more glorious... They're starting to have an amazing beauty. Stare at Jesus and they will fade away. I love the way one commentator says it about the disciples. He says this, At the Sea of Galilee, Christ called the disciples to follow him. And so they did, leaving behind their boats and their businesses. They were so taken with Christ that they never felt the cost of their renunciation. And then listen to this. They walked in the epicenter of a new adoration that had silently slain their old affections. Before they know it, they're talking about this crazy guy that they're following, and they're not talking about their business or their boats or their fish. What used to preoccupy every waking moment of their lives is an afterthought. And now Jesus is all their preoccupation. 
He goes on to say this, renunciation that is self-aware is mere asceticism, suddenly boasting in its own magnificent sacrifice. If we know this is something I should get rid of, but I'm not staring at Jesus, it's more legalism, right? It's more, I'm going to lay this aside just to lay it aside, but we're not truly laying it aside because there's something better. There's someone better and we're placing our affections on him. He goes on to say, the apostles came to to Christ, having surrendered the possessions that stood between them and the will of God. Even so, we do not remember them because they chose poverty, but because they adored Christ. If we too are spellbound by his excellence, relinquishment will be more a byproduct of devotion than a prerequisite of it. And then he says this, true lovers of Christ can stand the pain of self-denial. Jesus is what makes you, compels you to begin the race. That somebody would die for you. That somebody would live a perfect life and offer himself for you. I was reading last night David's 51st Psalm. And he just pleads over and over again. Blot out my transgressions. Take away my sin. Remove my sin. If there is any way, please... I hate what I've done and there's no way I can remove it. Please take it away. And then he says, you will cleanse me. You will cleanse me according to your loving kindness. You will make me whiter than snow. There's, n- there's nothing in the world that is greater than the truth of the gospel that someone took your place, died your death, rose to newness of life and then says to you, simply because I love you, simply because it will glorify my Father. I want to save you. I want to cleanse you. I want to free you from guilt, from shame. I want to cleanse everything and offer you life. It's Jesus that compels us to begin the race. It's Jesus Jesus that helps us to endure the race, to run the race with endurance. It's Jesus that helps us to get up when we've fallen. This is when we know that we need to recalibrate our understanding of the gospel. When you fall in sin, do you run to Jesus or do you run away from him? Are we like Adam and Eve when we fall and we say, you know what, I'm going to hide? Or do we run with expectancy knowing that he is there to forgive? He is our great high priest and he is there to wipe away our sin, to remove it as far as the east is from the west. An adoration of Jesus Christ, adoring him, treasuring him, cherishing him, will make laying aside of any hindrance, any hindrance easy. It will, it will just take the pain out of it. It will make it purposeful and it will make it not legalistic. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. But the opposite is true. If, for whatever reason, I am distracted and my eyes are fixed on something other than Jesus, then I slow down in my running. What once was a quick pace becomes... A walking. Walking turns into crawling. Crawling turns into sitting, and sitting turns into quitting. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and run with endurance because he ran his race in absolute perfection and offers that to you and to me. Secondly, run your race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus alone because Jesus ran his race against the greatest opposition. Not only did he run in absolute perfection, he ran against the greatest opposition. 
So we are to fix our eyes first too on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, namely you and me, and the glory that would come to the Father, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and now he has been glorified. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But the author of Hebrews doesn't leave us there. He says this, Consider him. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That word consider means to reflect upon and compare with. Look at the two. How are you running and how did Jesus run? Consider his running. Sometimes when we run, we see the obstacles in our way and we say, you know what, I need to slow down for a little bit. You know what, this has gotten really hard and I'll I'll work hard next time, but right now I'm just going to kind of walk around this and we'll get through it. The author of Hebrews says, no, consider Jesus. Was there anyone who had greater opposition stacked against him? No. No one in the history of humanity will ever have greater opposition than Jesus faced, and yet he ran his race in utter perfection with utter endurance to the end. So if he can run his race with endurance, then you and I, facing much less obstacles, much less oppression, much, much less circumstances that would want to destroy us and want to kick us out of the race, surely we can continue to run. And that's the whole point of verse 3. Continue to run. Don't grow weary and lose heart. That phrase, grow weary and lose heart, was actually used a number of times by Aristotle in extra-biblical Greek. And it's an athletic metaphor. It's talking about a runner who has stopped, who has grown weary in running the race and lost heart and has stopped before the finish line. Just collapsed. I'm done. So the author of Hebrews says, finish the race. If you look to Jesus, you'll finish the race. If you consider the obstacles that were in front of him, if you consider the hostility that he endured, you'll be able to make it through. And as you run your race, you won't stop before the finish line if you fix your eyes on him. You won't fall down, losing heart, growing weary, quitting, giving up, if you fix your eyes on him. I can guarantee you this. The race that we run is always strenuous. It's always strenuous. We should be tired at the end of every day because we've been running a race. It is sometimes discouraging. It is sometimes discouraging as we run, and occasionally it's very hostile as we run. But we have someone, a friend who sticks closer than a brother, who ran his race in utter perfection and says to you, come, I paved the way, I made it possible, and I can perfect you as well. Run to me. Run to me. How do we run this race? We listen to the witnesses around us. We lay aside the hindrances and we look to Jesus because he ran his race in absolute perfection and he ran his race even in the midst of the greatest opposition. We too can run. Brothers and sisters, can we say against that Bible professor the simple, precious, beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ will always be enough? Will always be enough. Charles Spurgeon says it this way Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, let me affectionately warn you 
For it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Let us work to feel what an evil thing this is. Little love to our own dying Savior. Little joy in our precious Jesus. Little fellowship with the beloved. Hold true remorse in your soul while you sorrow over your hardness of heart. But don't stop at sorrow. Remember where you first received salvation and go at once, go at once to the cross. There and only there can you wake up your spirit. No matter how hard, how insensible, how dead we may have become, let's go again. Yes, let's go again in all the rags and poverty and depravity of our natural condition. Let's clasp that cross. Let's look into those eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain filled with love. This is will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith and the tenderness of our hearts. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Can I just ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads, And just ask the Lord, how was 2014? Did I ever follow Jesus from a distance? Could I live contentedly in 2014 without the present enjoyment of seeing my Savior's face? What moments in 2014 did I have little love for my dying Savior? Did I have little joy in who Jesus is? that I have little fellowship with those he came to save. Let's ask the Lord to search us and to know us as we begin this new year and as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's do this collectively. Let's do this as a church. As a church, have we enjoyed the Savior's face this year? What are we going to do differently in the next year? To love him more. We want to love him. So God, search us and know us. God, we love Jesus. We are blown away that he would even consider us, even be mindful of us. And we know that we have begun a race that's not about beginning, it's about ending, it's about finishing strong. We do not want to grow weary and give up before we cross that finish line. God, please make us runners who run with endurance. May we listen to the witnesses this year. There are so many found in the pages of your word God, may we give ourselves to your word this year. And may we behold wonderful things from your word. And there are so many witnesses around us, whether biographies, whether men and women in this church that have gone before us in many different ways. God, may we give ourselves to discipleship in listening to these witnesses. May we be faithful to our Bible studies that we gather together, not for the purpose of checking something off the list, but because if we do not gather, we will stop running.
God, teach us what our hindrances are, what the encumbrances are. May our idols be slain quickly, destructively. May we just destroy every idol in our heart. Teach us even over the course of the next couple months as we look at various idols that pop up in our hearts. Teach us how to throw away good things that have become God things in our lives that have turned into idols and are are now bad things. God, may we be humble enough to ask others around us what they might see in our lives as encumbrances. And God, may your spirit do a mighty work in our lives in this church to root out sin so that we would throw away that which is so easily entangling. And God, may we fix our eyes on your precious son. Even now as we prepare to take these elements that remind us of the precious sacrifice that Jesus made. May we fix our eyes on him. God, may we not look inward. May we not look to ourselves and to what we have to offer because all we have is filthy rags. May we just admit that now and now cling and clasp to the cross and nothing else. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is the author. He is the perfecter. He is our everything. May he be glorified as this morning is used to fix our eyes on him and him alone. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.